As inventions go, it seems an unlikely one, but the sound of this inspired instrument has made its mark on modern music. to Sonosphere, the podcast that explores the sounds all around us in art and music movements through history. This is episode three, The Ancient Sampler, History and Evolution of the Mellotron. We're your hosts, I'm Amy. And I'm Chris. Today we are discussing what many have dubbed as the first sampler and or drum machine, the Mellotron. The Mellotron is a keyboard instrument operating with magnetic tape loops invented in the early 1960s that revolutionized the way novice and professional musicians alike could manipulate sound by providing the instruments of a full orchestra at our fingertips. Today we will explore the history of the Mellotron, how it rose in popularity, and then faded out as digital technology took over. On April 16, 2016, at Crosstown Arts, a pair of Memphis musicians will take part in a performance unlike anything anyone has heard. Robbie Grant and Jonathan Kirksky will perform the first duet of its kind, Duets for Mellotron. In tandem with this performance, we thought we'd take a moment to discuss this unique instrument. The Mellotron, once championed by Mike Pender of the Moody Blues and used in songs by the Rolling Stones and the Beatles, has since faded into obscurity. However, many individuals and Mellotron collectors remain passionate about this unique instrument. Let us take a moment to trace the history of magnetic tape recording and the spark it gave humanity. The invention of magnetic tape recording happened in Denmark. A telephone engineer named Valdemar Poulsen was experimenting with a way to record telephone conversations using magnetism. He patented the magnetic telegraphone in 1898. At the 1900 Paris Fair, Poulsen recorded the oldest known magnetic recording, which is of Emperor Franz Joseph. Polson's invention faded into obscurity due to its unreliability and the popularity of the ediphone and dictaphone, which used wax cylinders to record sound. War has long been a major ground for innovation, with armies trying to stay ahead of their enemies. During World War I, German spies operated a radio station in New York where they sent high-speed telegraph messages via wire recorders to German submarines. Only another wire recorder operating at high speed could make the messages intelligible by playing them at a slower speed. Charles Apgar, who operated an amateur radio station, happened to intercept some of these transmissions and handed them over to the U.S. government. 
This led to the closure of the German station in 1915, preventing future messages being sent via telegraphone. However, Germans would make improvements to wire recording in the years following World War I. Kurt Steele purchased a telegraphone in 1903 and tinkered with it until the mid-1920s. Improving on the design of Polson, Steele started selling this as well as the first magnetic cassette recorder. He sold thousands to Nazi Germany. Around the same time, German engineer Fritz Flumer was discovering a new way of magnetic recording. By coating paper tape with iron oxide, he invented what he named sounding paper. Herman Butcher of the German General Electric Company, AEG, hired Flumer to develop a recorder. In 1933, Edward Schuler, part of a research team at AEG, patented a ring-shaped machine head. This was game-changing, as the previous machine heads were shaped like needles and damaged the tape. Chemist Friedrich Matthias approved upon Flumer's sounding paper by combining a layer of carbonyl iron powder with a layer of cellulose. By doing this, Matthias developed a two-layer magnetic tape similar to that of film in the 1920s. This breakthrough forever changed the landscape of recording and sound manipulation. Sound and time manipulation has fanaticized musicians and composers since non-organic noise entered daily life. From Russolo's Intono Romori to Cage's prepared piano to Delia Derbyshire's tape loops, there has always been a quest to manipulate time and incorporate noises, including electronic sounds and natural sounds that surround us. The Mellotron bridged the gap between the old-school organs and newer technology that was accessible to the masses. The first iteration of what we know as sampling was first created with the Chamberlain, using pre-recorded tape or what Harry Chamberlain patented as tape replay technology. goes that in 1946 Harry Chamberlain recorded himself playing the organ and the idea struck him that if he could record himself playing the organ why couldn't he record other sounds and play them back again through an organ the idea was for this invention to serve as a home entertainment device Chamberlain created the model 100 rhythmate in 1949 which had 14 loops and a built-in one-foot speaker many call this the first drum machine with the success of the 100 model, Chamberlain upgraded to Model 200, the first multi-changing tape system with quarter-inch tape track. The brochure implies that this model controls sounds such as bass and snare drums, tom-toms, bells, wood blocks, slide, whistles, and sirens, cymbals, maracas, and tambourines, string instruments, wind instruments, piano, and marimba, animals, auto horns, whistles, trains, planes, cars, rain, thunder, or simply any sound you care to hear. The M400 tape relay used in 1959 was about three feet tall. Chamberlain followed with the portable model 300 and 350, 
and the chambered organ style model 600-650. On the model 600, the left-hand keyboard is split into rhythm and accompaniment instrument stations. The right-hand keyboard has lead instruments. There are 40 keys on the left side, 15 rhythm, 25 accompaniment, 35 on the right. Cycling is controlled by what works out to be a relay-driven analog computer. There are no transformers in this machine. It runs on 110 volts. Wires go from black foot pedals up to the rhythm keys on the keyboard. If you press down on a foot pedal, the corresponding key is pressed. You can play the rhythm keys by the keyboard or the foot pedals. It is about three feet tall and the facade is mostly made of wood. Many artists feature the Chamberlain in the recordings, like Jane and Dean's albums, Save for a Rainy Day, Judy Hinsky, and Jerry Yester, and the Beach Boys album, Wild Honey. Chamberlain never meant for his invention to be anything more than a home entertainment device. However, now any musician or producer has the ability to create the sounds of a whole orchestra without hiring a live one. This, of course, became controversial. According to the National Music Center's article, An Orchestra at Your Fingertips, the unionized workers of the American Federation of Musicians saw the advent of the Chamberlain tape replay keyboard as a direct threat to their industry. Almost overnight, the unsynthesized sounds of dozens of instruments were put at the fingertips of a single keyboardist. Who would want to hire a five-piece band when they could instead pay one skilled Chamberlain player to replicate the same sound? The terrifying thought of unemployment led the AFM to ban the device from all venues save for cocktail lounges, and in an attempt to dissuade any penny pinchers, ordered that all Chamberlain keyboardists receive the wages of three musicians. This, of course, hurt sales. Chamberlain didn't believe that his instrument threatened musicians' jobs. He said, because there are too many variables in what a musician can do when he plays his instrument. It's close, but what the Chamberlain tape replay keyboard is used for, more or less, is to sweeten up the music. According to the history of the Mellotron on Mellotron.com, after a period of time, Harry hired a man named Bill Franzen as a salesman to help him increase his sales, but there were many problems. Harry's inability to keep up with the orders and the basic unreliability of the mechanism. There were six banks of tape in each keyboard that were scrolled from station to station, thereby giving the player a different set of three sounds to choose from. His method of stopping the scrolling had about a 40% failure rate and caused tape disasters few have ever seen the likes of. Also, the replay heads he used were unmatched, producing a very uneven playback from key to key. Nine months later, Bill concluded that even though Harry's wonderful keyboard was sound in principle, he was never going to fix the problems that continued to plague the tape shuttling system. Believing that the idea was too good to be left alone, Bill appropriated two of Harry's Model 600 Music Masters and took them to England to try and find someone with the engineering and manufacturing talent to bring this idea to fruition. Franzen sent Leslie Bradley of Bradmatic Limited Manufacturing in Birmingham, England a request for 70 matching machine replay heads. Bradley consulted with his brothers, Frank and Norman, 
Thinking the heads were to be used for a music machine, they asked to see what Franzen was working on. Franzen showed them the instrument, and the brothers were impressed, and asked if Franzen could improve upon the design to be mass-produced. Of course Franzen said yes, so Leslie Bradley and his brothers, believing that they had a truly original innovation, proceeded with their plans. Harry Chamberlain came to England furious they stole his design. After many conversations, he agreed to around a sum between 30,000 and 60,000 pounds for the technology, later in 1966. Chamberlain even gave some of the master tape loops to the Bradleys that are still preserved today. Mellotronics, the company, was born. It's a musical computer, and as you know, Eric, the right hand is lead instruments with a choice of 18 different ones, and the left hand is rhythms in this half and backgrounds in this half, and it's all been fed onto hundreds of tape tracks. Later, the name changed to Streetly Electronics. They faced the challenge of mass-producing reels of tape. These reels had to be perfect in pitch and rhythm. And keep in mind that this had to be done without any digital editing tools. Diligent solved this problem, and they moved forward with the MK1 in 1963. Streetly returned with the successful model MK2. Mike Pender, a young musician, worked at the end of the production line and ensured the Mellotrons operated correctly the way these things change a song because um, I, uh, w when I wrote Nights in White Satin I, I came home from a gig one night and just sat on the side of the bed in bed's sitting room and wrote the basic song and I took it into the rehearsal room the next day and I, and I played a few bars of it Nights in White Satin and the other guy said, yeah, it's all right. You know, just like, and Mike said, Pl play it again. And I went, nice and white And he went on the Mellotron, and that's what made it um, the spark that brought it alive. Leslie Bradley helped Pinder purchase an MK2. Pinder and his group, the Moody Blues, used it to record their hit single, Love and Beauty. The Mellotron gained a pop audience as it was used by the Kinks, the Rolling Stones, and the Beatles, most notably, Strawberry Fields Forever. Early owners of the MK2 are Princess Margaret, King Hussein of Jordan, Peter Sellers, and Scientology founder L. Ron Hubbard, whose Mellotron is now installed in the Church of Scientology's head UK office at St. Hill Manor. What made the sound so good, so interesting and different? It goes without saying that each note of each sound must be recorded separately in any so-called tron that avoids this in favor of any single sample covering groups of notes should be rejected. It's also the EMI tape, which Streetly claimed is the best tape formula in the world because it doesn't shed oxide and it has the original EQ characteristics for that sound. Secondly, Martin Smith insists the sound of a Tron is not the master tapes. It's the sound from the original recordings made in IBC Studios edited to master tapes edited to copy masters, edited to work masters, which were then used to generate the tapes on your machine. 
Finally, it's both of these things played across a properly aligned tape head and recorded via an instrument's preamp. To facilitate this, all the sounds are recorded via the Streetly Electronic Skeletron, an exoskeleton mellotron which allows easy access to the adjustment and the tape alignment for each tape and sound. The entire process may have been lengthy and meticulous, but the result is a library that is completely unique and authentic. Musicians called to make the instrument more portable, but Streetly seemed to miss the mark. The MK300 had 52 keys, quarter-inch tape loops with no pitch control and was hardly portable. The brothers rethought this design and they went back to 3 8 inch tape, added a removable cassette, added 16 new sounds to the original MK2 library, making it the lightest of all the models. This design was the MK400 and it came out in 1970. It was possibly the most visible of all the Mellotrons and was more effectively mass-produced and easier to transport due to its smaller design. It was known as the People's Mellotron. The technology was simpler than its predecessor. It offered only three of the most popular Mellotron sounds with ability to switch and merge, and was clearly cheaper. The dream of the personal orchestra in your own home came true. When we talk about the Mellotron today, one usually refers to the Snow White Model 400 with 35 wooden keys. The Mellotron was difficult to control in the 60s and 70s. The AARP string ensemble synthesizer in the mid-70s and other digital technology in the 80s and 90s was easier to use and sample, so they took over as the Mellotron became less popular. One reason the Mellotron faded in popularity was the move from analog to digital. Krautrock legends Tangerine Dream used the Mellotron heavily on their 70s albums, Stratosphere, Atem, Rubicon, Encore, and Phaedra, which you are hearing now. Tangerine Dream went digital in the mid-80s. A number of bands still use the Mellotron as a prominent instrument. XTC used the second-hand Mellotron on their 1982 album Mummer. The UK band Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark featured it heavily on their platinum-selling 1981 album Architecture and Morality. Andy McCluskey said that they used the Mellotron because they were starting to run into limitations of the cheap monophonic synthesizers they had used up to that point. He bought a second-hand M400 and was impressed with the strings and choir sounds it made.
Martin Smith made a 1993 Mellotron tribute album, Rhyme of the Ancient Sampler, which featured tracks from luminaries like Mike Pender from the Moody Blues, Willie Wollstenholm from Barclay James Harvest, David Cross from King Crimson, Nick Magnus from the Steve Hackett Band, and others, causing a resurgence of interest in the Mellotron in the 1990s. Notable uses of the Mellotron in the 90s are on Oasis's Wonderwall, that's the cello, and several songs on Radiohead's OK Computer. In 2007, Streetly improved upon the MK2, making the M4000 model. It has a similar and more reliable cycling system design, which uses digital control rather than the antique sync tape and stepper motor system. It features 24 of the most popular sounds from the M400 model, which is the best-selling model from the 70s. Synthesizers such as the Alesis Micron take the threat against the orchestra to a new level, with hundreds of digitized sounds and its small frame which makes it easy to play anywhere. The limited number of sounds available and bulky frame of the Mellotron just isn't easy for musicians to travel with. But those looking for an analog sound still continue to use the Mellotron to this day. The Mellotron did help usher in an age of bands by being able to have a symphony in a box on stage every night. Without it, we may have never had Moog or Nova synthesizers. Synthesizers continue to get smaller and digital technology advanced at a rapid rate, which makes it easy to see how the Mellotron faded into obscurity. Although this instrument is not featured prominently in studios or on stage anymore, there are still avid collectors of the Mellotron. On the next episode, we will talk with the Mellotron musicians and hear more about what makes them excited to play this ancient sampler. Next time on Sonosphere. Check out the playlist accompanying this episode featuring songs using the Chamberlain and the Mellotron at Press Play on sonospherepodcast.com. This has been an independent production of Sonosphere, produced by Amy S. and Chris Williams, and engineered by Memphis, with a special thanks to Megan Avery. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.